Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Our guest today is Lorraine Siegel, a communication and conflict management teacher, coach, and consultant who shares the best of practical and spiritual tools she has gathered and created during her own and her clients' journeys. We talk about the role that forgiveness and vulnerability can play in resolving conflict in the workplace and at home, and how acknowledging our own mistakes and accepting those made by others can break down barriers and help us find common ground. To learn more about Lorraine and her work, please visit her website at www.conflictremedy.com. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you for joining us today. I wanted to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about the company that you run and the website called Conflict Remedy. Well, thank you for inviting me, Leonard. And yeah, my uh, business is called Conflict Remedy. And I do have a website by this the same name, conflictremedy.com. And I am a conflict transformation specialist. And I do one-on-one coaching. I do dialogue coaching. I do some mediation. And I do a lot of training and consulting. Uh, I specialize in helping leaders, particularly with workplace conflict. And I've worked with nonprofits and government agencies and corporations um, because people have, you know, some people just ignore conflict, but a lot of people recognize that it's scary or they don't know what to do. And I'm able to come in and, and help them reimagine conflict and transform it and uh, communicate better and create more harmony. Well, that's what this podcast is all about. So you've come to the right place. How did you find yourself uh, at this point in your life and in this field? It's sort of a, a dual track that got me here. I was a teacher for many years, which definitely overlaps with part of what I do, the skills to help my students and coach my students and, and teach them. And also on a personal path of spiritual awareness and forgiveness, etc. So that definitely informs the work I do. But what actually got me into the field was I was a tenured professor and the head of a department at a community college. And my students were lovely. I liked the work I did. But the environment, uh, which unfortunately is true at many academic institutions, was utterly toxic. It was racist, sexist, homophobic, mm-hmm. anti-change, anti-immigrant, and I was bullied and mobbed there and ended up with PTSD, actually. And the reasons I was bullied and mobbed were partly that I was different. I was a Jewish lesbian. 
partly because I was extremely competent and it threatened mediocrity, partly because I wanted to hold the institution accountable for its mission statement <laughs> about education and you know equal opportunity and all that. And it, it was quite horrific what happened to me. It wasn't just bullying by one person. It was a sizable portion of the administration and my colleagues who really tried to destroy me personally and professionally. And there was one very defining moment where I was forced to participate in a so-called mediation, which was actually a let's all tell Lorraine what's wrong with her and how horrible she is. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely devastating, you know, to be the recipient of so much malice and hostility. But I walked out of there and I thought, this can't be what a mediation is. <laughs> and I, I and then, you know, serendipitous, I was I was praying for a way out of this place by that time. And a colleague of mine who taught at a different school told me about a class on women, gender and conflict. And that was close to me at the, uni uh, the local university. And so I took that class, absolutely fell in love with the field, got certified in conflict management while uh, conflict resolution, they called it then, while I was still full time at this college and eventually escaped and started my own business, not because I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but because there were no jobs on offer for what I wanted to do. And I no regrets. And it's been an amazing experience. Before you left, did you get a chance to employ any of the conflict resolution skills that you had learned in, in that job? Or did you <laughs> just get out as soon as you could? With hardcore people like that who have no interest in changing, most of the skills I have are not useful because you know this. If people aren't utterly aren't willing to look at their part and aren't willing to change, there's not much you can do. However, I did develop skills there that helped me help my clients, and uh, such as you know how to write an email where you're inside you're saying "f you bitch," but you you can. <laughs> say it in a calm, kind way and uh, how to protect myself. And I also um, had to deeply rely on the forgiveness work that I had done because there was another defining moment. And um, I actually, I, I've written a memoir and I wrote about this in my, in my memoir um, that I was so angry at some egregious thing that had happened. I can't even remember what now. And I walked out of my office. I was so angry that I felt like my rage could burn the entire school down in that moment. And I scared myself. I thought, oh my God, I'm not, you know, I'm not this mean, angry, vindictive person. And I realized that I had to I had to forgive these people not because what they did was right, but because if I didn't, my heart would shatter into a million bitter pieces and I might never recover. And so I prayed for them every day for about five years. And not only did that help me survive, but I quickly recognized when I started doing conflict transformation work that if people were holding a grudge or resentments, there was no way they could ever resolve the conflict. Mm -hmm. And so I've actually used what I learned the hard way and needed so desperately for my survival to help many of my clients as well. 
Well, that's very interesting. I've been on something of a personal journey myself of, of self-awareness and self-care, and I'm well into my 50s, and, and self-care especially is a concept that I had never even heard of, let alone practiced for you know 55 years. And one of the things I've learned is the importance of forgiveness and, and also, and maybe more importantly, that forgiveness isn't really about the other person. Forgiveness is about yourself and what's going on inside and letting go uh, of whatever it is that that person did, whether or not they're looking for your forgiveness. In this case, I, you just described, I would assume that if you told the person that you had forgiven him or her, they would have looked at you like you were insane. What do you mean? I didn't do anything wrong that I need to be forgiven. It isn't as much about them as it is about you. You were so right, Leonard. That's, And I actually teach forgiveness as part of my conflict transformation teaching. I have a, a well, I taught this, I created and taught a 12-week program in conflict management, they called it at uh, Sonoma State University. And one of the weeks, it's called letting go of grudges and resentments at work. And it's all about forgiveness. And one of the things I say, just as you were talking about is forgiveness is a gift I give myself. I, I didn't for, work on forgiving these people because what they did was okay. I did it for me. And that's really the point of it, as far as I'm concerned. I wonder why it is the workplace can be so fraught uh, with conflicts and grudges and disagreements. You know, I specialize in workplace conflict, but I actually think that I've written some blog posts like, mother always liked you best, um, family roles in the workplace. (laughs) And um, I, I do think that it's, it's not so much about the workplace as it is about human nature. And as I say, when I teach the class about letting go of grudges and resentments that, you know, we don't get models for forgiveness. There's this whole thing about Christian forgiveness, which is very superficial. And uh, for the most part, um, you know, I'm sure there are some people who deeply embrace it in their hearts, but mostly that's not what we get. And you certainly don't get it on TV or media or so we don't, we, we learn a lot more about holding grudges. And one of the things I, I teach is uh, I do what I call myth busting mm-hmm. about forgiveness, you know, what it really is and what it isn't. It isn't about, you don't have to have an apology before you forgive someone. There's no rule like that, you know, all those kinds of things. And I think extending that beyond forgiveness with conflict, we don't have good models for how to resolve conflict. And one of the essential concepts that's um, that I teach and talk about it and write about is about story. I use this actually in my memoir. I, I have a presentation that I just did to a group of Michigan organization of mediators, lovely people. And I called it Turn Your Mistakes into Stories. And that whole thing about story is we we remember, we encode what the story we've told ourselves about what happened. We don't remember what actually happened. So we have a story that makes us the hero or the victim and the other person, the villain. And we hold very strongly to that story. 
And it blows my student and, and client's minds when they realize that it's a story and the other person has a different story. And I don't think people understand that very well. And so they they blame others. They, they don't look at the contribution they've made to the problem. And it's very immature in a way, but so common in our society. So if I came to you, and had a, a, a sort of a generic problem with a colleague. You mentioned being bullied by some of yours, and maybe I'm experiencing that as well. What are some practical tips that you can share for anyone who might be facing difficult situations in, in the workplace? Let me just say a little about how I work and then give some tips. The first thing I do is really deeply listen to people. Because whether, you know, no one's story is completely true, but we all need to be listened to. We all need to feel like we value and that our feelings are important and that if we've been hurt, that there's someone will care and listen. And so that's always part of what I do, whether, you know, someone's labeled a bully or a victim or the, you know, they're in interpersonal conflict. And then ever so gently, what I start doing is asking them to think about how the other person might see it. What's their, what their story might be. How would they describe what happened? And that inner process, I, I personally believe, it depends who you talk to, but that conflict is between 60 and 90% internal. You know, most of it is what's going on inside us. So a lot of what I do with people is introspective. You know, how how can you look at this differently? If you don't assume they're doing this out of malice, some people are, but most people aren't, what might be their universe that they're moving through? You know, the story in which they're the hero. And that's amazingly powerful work. And then in terms of, you know, um, that's, sort of the practical in terms of practical tools one is listening with curiosity you know speaking your truth gently being willing to understand what it's like for them without needing to just go along with what they want necessarily and creating more space for problem solving for reimagining the situation. I'll just, should I give you a couple of examples? With Yes, please. Okay. So I worked with, uh, this was a, a big credit union. Okay. And I worked with a woman who was supervising another woman. I worked with both of them. One was a VP and one was a manager. And the VP thought the manager was impossible, that she wouldn't listen to her, all those kinds of things. The manager thought the VP was actually incompetent. And, you know, they had all these judgments and accusations flying around and they weren't working together well or listening to each other. So I met with them several times separately. Um, and it, it turned out that the, the VP was making all these assumptions about the capabilities of the manager and trying to not give her too much work, kind of being codependent. And she had never checked with the manager of whether she needed that kind of care and how she was interpreting it. She wasn't communicating with her of what she was thinking and checking in with her of what she needed or wanted. Uh, the manager, as it turned out, now I do what I called 
DEIP, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging informed coaching. So the manager was black. So I asked her if she thought it was racism, you know, to let her to, so we could start the conversation of that I was willing to go there with her to see if that was part of uh, the assumptions and misunderstandings. And she didn't really know. But as we talked more deeply and she trusted me, it turned out she was a very effective manager, but she had a particular style and she was judging the VP for not following her style and reading her mind <laughs> to do it her way. And so when both of them realized the big pieces they were missing, and I wasn't telling them what each other was saying, I was just exploring with them, they realized how much they had missed and how much they misunderstood. And I never needed to work with them together because the work they did separately enabled them to have a completely different kind of conversation and it healed their relationship. It was really fun and wonderful. And do you find over the last few years as we've you know, moved into this uh, world of virtual and hybrid work, how has that affected the workplace uh, in terms of both the conflict that exists and how you go about resolving it if you're not actually seeing one another face-to-face either very often or at all? I don't think it makes as much difference as people might think it would. When the Actually, before the uh, pandemic hit, I brought my business home. I started doing most of my coaching and teaching on Zoom. And I haven't really found that it's made a difference in terms of the quality of bringing people together or the quality of the work I could do in one-on-one coaching or or the teaching. Um, I would say that I think with email, you have to be, and that hasn't changed. It's just, it's so so easy to misinterpret and and run some awful story around email. And so email is a, a, a place where you one has to be very, very careful in interpretation, in wording, in checking in, etc. And the only other thing I've noticed really is that because I've written about being bullied and mobbed, and I, I do get I do uh, consult and help people sometimes who who are being actively mobbed and and bullied. And being able to work at home has has lessened it for some of them. Although cyberbullying is a is a big thing too. But people are people, and assumptions and misunderstandings are pretty much the same. Um, and gossip and every I mean maybe gossip's a little bit better. People aren't actually together. I don't know. Certainly things have changed. And I work for a company that is, I'm in Washington, D.C., and the firm is based in South Jersey. And I joined them in July of 2020. So, you know, right early on in the pandemic when everything was still very much closed down. And it was a year and a half before I actually met most of my colleagues in person. But, you know, it was strange to sort of have those kinds of relationships. So I understand that conflict going to happen whenever you sort of put people together, no matter what the uh, forum might be or the arena. If you're having an, an issue with someone and you're only virtual, is there any difference in the way that you would recommend approaching somebody to resolve that conflict? Is there any anything different or new about how to, to do something like that? If I'm coaching someone to help them have a difficult conversation. If something was happening 
I would just get up and walk down the hall and sit down and, you know, chat with them about what was going on and, and resolve it that way or meeting in the lunchroom or whatever uh, it may be. But now you, you know, I, I can't do that. Uh, if I need to talk to somebody about something, I've got to do it this way. And I just wonder if that poses any additional challenges or maybe makes things easier. I'm I think it's different, a little bit different, but really, I, you know, I, I was doing more uh, in-person kinds of coaching and teaching when I started than I am now. And really, in terms of resolving things, I mean, yeah, you, you can't just casually run into someone, but that doesn't generally work for resolving conflicts anyway, if they've built up. I did have one student tell me about two co-workers who got in a physical fight about a tool <laughs> with what they both wanted to use. But that's not resolving it. That that was acting out, you know. I can't I really can't say I've noticed a difference. I, I'm a very intuitive person. So I pick up all kinds of clues from people and I even only I've had clients I only saw not saw heard on the phone and I'm still able to be effective. I I think that to resolve a conflict it takes some thought and some openness anyway and you can either do that in real life face to face or on Zoom. Well, some of the the tools that you talked about earlier, like active listening and being empathetic and trying to understand where the other person is coming from, and as you put it, the the story that they have that they've told themselves in their minds, I, I suppose doesn't matter the way you engage. Those are still tools that would come into place. I, I was thinking almost more of the mechanics of it. You know, if, again, if I need to clear something up with somebody and I'm in an office and can just walk down the hall and sit with them, they're sort of forced to talk to me because I'm there. But if I try to schedule a meeting with someone who I'm in conflict with, who may just not want to have anything to do with me, it's easier to put me off because they have to let me in. I can't force my way in. That makes sense to me. I I haven't encountered that. I mean, when I'm called in, you know, people know there's a problem. Right, right. But I do think that if you say, I really need to talk to you for a few minutes, can we set something up? that that it's not quite like going in there. But uh, yeah, sometimes if it's a small thing, going to their office and, and just chatting about it could be a good thing. But if it's a big thing, that's not the best way to approach it anyway. I was looking through your website before we started, and I, I read one of the blog posts where you talked about uh, the concepts of blame speak and shame speak and moving that into share speak. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what those are and how we can either avoid the first two or quickly move from those to what I assume is a more positive way of interacting, which is share speak. Yeah. So I read a an article that was a it wasn't about conflict particularly, but it it mentioned blame speak, and I thought, oh, that's a an interesting uh, concept that I resonate with when I look at people's conflicts. So I thought, well, what is that? Okay, it could be it could be it's blaming other people and not for whatever is going on, and sometimes it's blaming ourselves, which I then turned around and called shame speak. And what I see is that's so common, and it 
just leads to more finger pointing and anger and defensiveness. And share speak, you know, there's a beautiful book called um, Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. It's a classic and I, I still love it. And they talk about switching from blame to contribution. So I decided to stick with speak and call and call it share speak. And it, partly this relates to, you know, I was talking about turn mistakes into stories. Another topic I write about a lot and think about a lot and use with my clients is about making mistakes and what it means to make a mistake and how most of us grow up thinking if we make a mistake, we're going to be annihilated or we're totally wrong and bad. And if we can change that to we're human, we make mistakes, then we're a lot more likely to be willing to look at our own part, our share in um in a conflict and um to ch- and it really changes the dynamics so it's not like your well-being and your survival and your status are at stake it's just oh yeah humans make mistakes you're singing my tune i'm a big advocate of acknowledging mistakes and whenever i see you know especially politicians just refusing to own up to it a classic example in my mind is the recent discovery of classified documents at President Biden's home and at the office in, in Washington. And to me, to simply have said, hey, look, this was a mistake. I didn't intend to take these documents. I uh, didn't know I had them. And the American people deserve better. And I pledge to do better. And to me, that that brings it all to, a, you know, almost to a close. No, I don't have them and I didn't do it and it's okay. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. And it and the other guy is worse and, and all of that. It's to me it just makes things worse. And I think as you're to sort of continue on a theme, if you're willing to acknowledge your own mistakes, you're more willing to be forgiving of other people's mistakes. Because yeah. as you point out, we all make them. We need a lot of help. We need a lot of help with this. Actually, one thing I wrote about in my my memoir, Angels and Earthworms, which actually totally fits, is it's something I used to talk to my students about around making mistakes. And they had a lot of shame for not already knowing English well. So I started, I recognized how bad they felt and how it could get in the way of them actually learning. And so I started talking to them about mistakes the beginning of the semester. And what I would say to them, I said, let's talk for a minute about mistakes. And their eyes would get really big. It was such an odd topic to them. And I'd say, you could sit in class all semester and not write anything and not open your mouth and say anything. And you wouldn't make any mistakes. And their eyes would get even wider, you know, and I'd say, but do you think that would be the best use of your time? Do you think you would really be learning and getting as much out of class as you could? And they'd say, no. And I'd say, that's because humans learn by making mistakes. I make mistakes every day and I invite you to make many mistakes in this class. I, I think that's good advice. I have three uh, young stepkids, and I often find myself helping them with their homework, and they get very discouraged when they can't do something. And that's one of my refrains is, look, if, if you knew how to do this, you wouldn't have to go to school and learn it. And if you didn't make mistakes while you're doing it, you, you wouldn't figure it out. So that's, you know, that's why you're here. That's why your teacher's here. That's why you go to school. It's the whole point. But I don't know if it's innate or driven home to us very early on as children. But yeah, there's just this fear that everybody, most of us anyway, seem to have of admitting uh, a mistake. I think it's how we're raised a lot. And it, 
it just keeps going in the workplace and creates all kinds of problems. You know, if you can't make a mistake and you have to be perfect, then you're in trouble and you're in conflict and you're you're miserable. So it's um, that's it's an important reframe. Yeah, it's amazing how a little vulnerability will go a long way. And if you're willing to admit that you've made a mistake, it can disarm people very quickly. And I like really accept it that it doesn't feel so vulnerable. It doesn't have to feel it's it's like, you know, I do a lot of work with unlearning racism and being an ally to people of color. And if there's one thing that I've learned through all the work I've done is that I'm still going to make stupid mistakes. I mean, I have some understanding. I'm able to support and listen and do some good things to help. But it doesn't mean I won't say something dumb because I grew up in a racist society, you know, and when I can accept that, then I don't have to be defensive and angry and feel like I've been accused of being a bad person if I say something that shows implicit bias. It actually makes me stronger because I'm I it's not like you poke me and then I'm like bleeding all over the place. It's like, oh yeah, I blew it. <laughs> Last question, what if anything else, any other advice would you have for listeners who are facing uh, a conflict in the workplace or maybe even at home uh, in terms of how they can go about resolving it? Well, I guess I want to invite everybody to visit my website, which is conflictremedy.com. And I have over 150 blog posts that I've written about clear communication and forgiveness and managing conflict at work and uh, related issues. I just wrote one called, um, or I wrote one recently called The Hero's Journey in Conflict. And um, I think people would find it a source of inspiration and help. And um, and I also want to recommend my, um, my memoir, Angels and Earthworms, which you can also find on the website. It's sort of a lighthearted take on I, the first line of the book description that I landed on is, how many big mistakes can you make and still end up with an amazing life? Quite a lot, it turns out, especially if the goddess has your back. <laughs> The point of the memoir also is about, you know, just kind of bumbling through life and learning as I go and forgiving myself and forgiving other people and, you know, having fun and finding true love too. And, you know, I think the last piece of advice I would say just for people is take a deep breath. When you feel all triggered and mad or hurt or everything, take a big, big breath before you do anything. And remember that these are other struggling human beings. Most of the time, they're not arch enemies or malicious actors. I mean, there are some, but most people aren't. And so give yourself some space to make mistakes, to be compassionate to yourself and others, and grow your understanding. It really, really helps. Amen to that. And Lorraine, thank you. This was a terrific conversation. And right in the wheelhouse of the topic of the podcast and the interests of our listeners. So I really appreciate your your coming on. And one last time for anybody who's interested in learning more about Lorraine and her work and ordering her book, Angels and Earthworms, you can visit her website at conflictremedy.com. Thank you so much, Leonard. <laughs> 
Thank you, as always, to Jim Cirillo at jimmyumgroup.com for our original music and to Rachel Greenberger for our original art. Please send questions to WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.